But yes, my, my name is Tolo. I've been coming here for about six years, uh, a member of the church. And today we will be studying God's Word together. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers will come down with Bibles. Um, please take one. If you do not have one, please keep it. It's a gift from the church. Or if you know someone that needs one, please get one and uh, give it to them. So we will be in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, going from verses 3 to 14. That's where we will be studying together today. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Um, let, let me pray and then we'll sort of jump into things, right? Our Father, thank you. It is always a pleasure, really a privilege, uh, to sit at your feet, to learn from you, to... She just be, she just be silent before you. Uh, my prayer today, God, is that you will help us take our cares, our worries, the anxieties of our hearts, and you help us put that in your hands, so that we are truly able to hear what you have for us, and that we will be humble enough to receive what you have for us. And and if that be a, a rebuke, a gentle nod, an encouragement, a confirmation from you. Uh, may our hearts all be open to that. And through all of this, may you and you alone be glorified. Uh, let, let every one of us, including me, hear your words today, uh, not my words, and, and help us to truly be dowed into you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will be in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, from verses 3 to 14. Uh, the title of the sermon, I usually forget to say that, but you have the handout in front of you. It's the unblushing promises of God. Um, so Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Before I read the text, though, let me give a, a brief background on Ephesians, right, uh, as a way to get us started. So uh, b- basically in the earliest manuscript of Ephesians, right, the, the phrase in verse 1 where he says uh, to, to, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, right, to the saints uh, who are in Eph- Ephesus, right, um, is actually not there in the earliest manuscript, like that phrase it, uh, in Ephesians or at Ephesians or at Ephesus, sorry. It's actually not there. So the, the idea, though, is that Paul wrote Ephesians uh, to a, a bunch of churches in Asia Minor. I think it's Southwestern Asian Minor. And um, it was later specifically assigned or linked to the church in, uh, at Ephesus. The reason I'm bringing that up is that the context of Ephesians is that Paul lays out his worldview, almost like a theology, his perspective on things, at least for the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he actually goes into specific instructions. Uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians was probably written at the same time he wrote Colossians. And when he wrote Colossians, he wrote that from a perspective of addressing some of the heresies in the church at that time. Uh, where they had some, they basically were bringing in different gods into the church and pantheon and all of that. And you see Paul's specifically referencing the supremacy of Christ in Colossians 1, 15 to 21. So he was writing that from a place of addressing the heresies. But the letter to the Ephesians is different. It seems he was writing it from a place of reflection. Um, as a man that knows that his end is near, it seems like after looking at what is happening at Colossae, He's stepping back and just from a place of reflection, laying out his theology, which is why some people have come to see the book of Ephesians as the crown and climax of Pauline theology, because he basically lays out what he believes in this book. Um, 
two things I want to draw out from that is, obviously Paul is in prison, right? And rather than him maybe looking for a way to get out of prison, he's thinking about the different churches all over the world, right? Which sort of shows you his heart and also shows you his identity, right? And also I want you to see how God is able to use, obviously, a very hard situation for him and still bring a lot of good out of that. So that's the context, and and I said all of that just to prepare our hearts as we look into the book, right, and as we study this together. So let me read um, the text. I'm actually going to read from verse 1 to 14, but our focus will be on verses 3 to 14. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you, have, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I know that's a long text. And so, no, I am not going to do what Nick usually does, right? I am going to probably just do an overview of this, and maybe in subsequent times we would actually go verse by verse. Um, and, and so the last time we were in Ephesians, we looked at verses 1 and 2. And from looking at those two verses, we, we talked about, or we drew two main points. Uh, one of these was the, the primacy of God being the primary actor in our lives. So if you look at Ephesians 1 to 2, uh, you see that the person initiating things is God. Right? God is always the primary actor in our lives. And then secondly, we, we drew this idea of our identity from the word saints. Right, so in verse 1, Paul talks about Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And again, remember I said that the word Ephesus actually wasn't there. Paul was just writing, uh, as is, just laying out his theology. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the idea here is that our identity are those who are saints. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now the word saints there doesn't mean we are pious individuals and we have everything completely set. We have all our acts together. What it actually means is that we are set apart unto God 
right? Consecrated unto him. The idea there is that we are being conformed to his nature. So we got these two things from the last time we were in Ephesians. One is the idea that God is the primary actor in our lives, the driving force. And two, the sense of our identity being basically that we are beloved children of God. Now, from that, Paul launches real quick into what you might call this outburst of praise. And that's what you see in verses 3 to 14. It's almost like words are just pouring out from him, right? And you see him listing out blessing after blessing from verse 4. And it almost feels like the contemplation of one blessing naturally leads to the other. And so there is just this outburst coming out from him. Um, In the Greek, actually, verses 3 to 14 is one long run-on sentence. There are no periods. It's just like someone is just pouring things out, like he's just talking, right? And you see the richness of the language he uses, right? And it's this idea of someone that has tasted the goodness of God and is basically just telling you what he has seen. And, And so everything in there is just packed and is just pouring it out, right? Like a cascading description of God's work. In Christ. Now, like I said, I'm going to pretty much paint an overview of the passage. I'm not going to go uh, phrase by phrase, or I should say verse by verse. But I want to organize my thoughts on the, I think, about four observations, and then I'll draw about five implications from that. So the first observation, in Christ. Um, It's interesting that Paul actually never uses the word Christians. Right to, to describe us. And this phrase, in Christ, you could almost say is his own equivalent of what he means when he calls us or when we call ourselves Christians. Right? Uh, within verse, between verse 3 and 14, that phrase or its equivalent appears about 11 times. So it's, it's a theme he's basically drumming. Right? And, and, and so, actually, if you look at the whole of Paul's letters, he uses the phrase, in Christ, about 164 times. And in Ephesians, he uses it about 36 times. So you know this is very important in understanding how Paul sees the gospel. And so basically to be in Christ points to our relationship with God. Right? It's to be grafted into him. Right? So to Paul, the phrase in Christ actually captures the essence of the gospel. And so you would see that everything that is in verse 3 to 14, all the work that God is doing, the triune God, is located in Christ. So uh, an analogy might help you. Just as you have the root planted in the soil, and and you have uh, the branches in the vine, and we get that imagery from John 15, um, and, and then you have fishes in the sea, so also the place of a Christian is in Christ. Right? This is exactly what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. Uh, a couple of things I want to draw from that. From that phrase, in Christ, we should be seeing a couple of things. One is we should be seeing our need for God. Right? If everything Paul is listing out, all the blessings that he talked about, so verse 3 being the thesis statement, how God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, and then he's basically describing the blessings afterwards, and all of that being in Christ, it should show us, first of all, our need for him. It, we should also be getting from that the, 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 the sacrifice of God. And his redemptive plan. And maybe lastly our identity. Right. Being that we are those that are in Christ. One theologian. And I'll read this. Uh, says this about this phrase. It says wherever Christians may be. 
in whatever difficult environment, threatened by materialism or paganism, in danger of being engulfed by the power of the state or overwhelmed by the pressure of non-Christian life, they are in Christ. This is not mysticism, but is intended to express the very practical truth that Christians, if faithful to their calling, will not try to be self-sufficient or to move beyond the limits of the purpose and control and the love of God, nor will they turn to the world for guidance, inspiration, and strength. They find all their satisfaction and their every need met in Christ, in Him, and not in any other place, nor from any other source. So the first observation there, if you read through that passage, is that the phrase in Christ shows up a lot. And what that basically means, what it basically points to is our relationship with God, that we are grafted into him, that we abide in him. The second observation I want to draw out from that is the, is the walk of the triune God as seen throughout history. Right, so in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, 9 to 11, let me read uh, a couple of this so that it helps to show what I'm saying. So... Let me just read verses 3 to 5, right? And I want you to just note there the walk of the triune God, right? It's a blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now you jump down to... Uh, verse 13 it says in him in christ you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory what i'm trying to draw out is you see the direct deliberate work of god right throughout history so you see it from eternity past, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, right? You see it directly in human history, right, in the present. And then you also see it at the end of times so where he talks about how all things will be united in Christ in verse 10. And also uh, in, in verse 13 to 14 where he talks about we are, uh, we are sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, right, until we acquire possession of our inheritance. The point, though, that I'm trying to drive here is this. If God is deliberately planning and working throughout all history, he is also working in your lives. You are included in that plan. Right? Uh, and, and the point is this, that all of human history is included in the plan of God, including your life. And I don't want you to rush over that. I want you to think about that. That God is deliberately or has deliberately been planning and working, driving, right, in your life. He has a plan he's working towards and you are included in that plan. So that should give you comfort. So that should give you rest. No, no matter how chaotic things are and to not downplay that, but to have hope that if the triune God is working throughout history, you are included in that plan. So observation number three, uh, the lavishness of God's grace. Right? Again, you cannot read this text 
without seeing just a lavishness of God, almost like the extravagance of God. Uh, in, in the parable, the prodigal son, uh, that title prodigal actually just means excessive, right? So in a sense, you can also title that parable the prodigal father, right? And, and the idea is driving towards this lavishness of God. And, and again, in going back to the text, Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? And, and, and so again, that, that phrase with every spiritual blessing doesn't necessarily suggest this otherworldly gifts. Nor is it even talking necessarily about the gifts in First Corinthians, show the the spiritual gifts, although it could be included. Uh, but the point of that phrase is what God's Spirit brings to us to enable us for life, right? And, and so, in the immediate context of this passage, to see the lavishness of God, what I want you to see are some of the specific promises in that passage. So, the first one, so Ephesians one three is kind of like the thesis statement. Right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he's about to list out some of those blessings, at least in the immediate context of this passage. And again, I just want you to be thinking about just the grace of God here. So the first one he talks about uh, divine election before the beginning of time. Uh, And I can't do that justice. And sometimes it's hard to think about that and what that means. Uh, But when you think about God choosing you, you specifically, in him, before the foundations of the world, it's outstanding. That's not talking about Paul. That's not talking about Peter. That's talking about you. So divine election from the beginning. Verse 5, it talks about sonship by adoption. Right? Meaning that part of his plan is to draw us to himself and bring us into his family. Right? We will are definitely not deserving of him. And, and then verse 6 talks about grace. And who doesn't need grace? Right? Amazing grace. Right? Uh, verse 9 to 10, verses 4b talks about his all-embracing purpose, the purpose of God for you. You can think about the deliberate planning of God for you before the beginning of time. And he has a purpose for that. Right, the privilege of being God's people, being adopted into his family. And then the seal of the Holy Spirit, which basically guarantees your eternity. Right? So I hope you are seeing the extravagance of God towards you, the generosity of God towards you. And, and then the one that really hits me, particularly, uh, maybe because I'm very sinful, but <laughs> you guys might not be. But the ones that hit me particularly is what I personally call the miracle of miracles, redemption. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, this one touches me because if I have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace, right, which is verse 7. Uh, the word riches, they just think of it according to the vastness of his grace, which we know his grace is inexhaustible. If he forgives me according to that, then I could literally be a thousand times worse. And my sins are still no match for his mercies. Right? Going back to the song we sang, right? my sins 
They are many. His mercies, they are more. And, and, and I want you to think about, you can literally be a thousand times worse. Yet your sins are no match for his mercies. Now, I, I'm not saying, and obviously this doesn't mean I just keep sinning. No. Actually, what he does for me when I think about this is that the security of his love, the security of his acceptance makes me always, whenever I sin or when I'm laid low by sin, right, there is no fear in getting up and running back to him because I know he will accept me. Because I know there isn't this thing hanging over my head that says, Toto, you've done too much. Strike three, strike 10, strike a thousand, you're done. Right? So no matter how much I am laid low, because of this lavishness of God, I get back up. There are no hindrances. I can always go back to the Father. Right? Because I know he will accept me. And so the natural question that arises from this observation, when we talk about the lavishness of God, is why? Why is God that way towards us who are undeserving? So let me offer two quick answers. I'm sure there are other ones. On one hand, this is simply who God is. This lavishness is simply who he is. If you really look at him, right, the extent of his grace, of his mercy and who he is, this is simply who he is. This is just what pours out of him. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, um, said a phrase or made a statement that I actually don't think about. He said, how many of you think about this? How many of you see God as the most joyous being in the universe? And honestly, I don't. I generally don't. You know, I see God as this strict, oh man, what did I do? I have to go back to him. But in coming across that phrase, God is the most joyous being in the universe. And when you think about that, then it makes sense. And so when we say God is love, the idea isn't that you look at love and then you try to describe God. No, no, no. The idea is you look at God and then you describe love. And so God is the most joyous being. This is just who he is. That's why he is this lavish. Now, the second reason is that we are simply depraved and broken. We need help. Right? We, we, we are in need of this excessive outpouring from God. Now, if, you know, a lot of times when you're walking with God and things are generally going well, you're generally thinking, I got this, things are going good, you know, what have I done? I'm not as crazy, right? But there's this quote from Thomas Watson that I actually think Nick mentioned at some point, and it's something that stayed with me. Let me sort of read it for you to show you the extent of our depravity and how much we need him. Uh, especially when we're comparing ourselves to other people. So uh, Thomas Watson says this. He says, The sins of the ungodly are like looking glasses in which we may see our own hearts. So do we see a heinous, impious wretch? Behold, a picture of our hearts. Such would we be if God left us. What is in wicked men's practice? What we think wicked people practice is the same thing that is in our nature. You see, sin in the wicked can be like fire which flames and blazes forth, which rages. But you see, sin in the godly is like fire hid in the embers. It's still there. Christian, 
Though you do not break forth into a flame of scandal or sin, yet you have no cause to boast. For there is as much sin in the embers of your nature. You have the root of all sin in you and would bear as hellish a fruit as any ungodly wretch if God did not either curb you by his power or change you by his grace. So you see the excessiveness that we see in this passage from God is actually an indication of our need for him. Right. And of course, Paul, who is writing this letter, if I were to take you to another part of the Bible, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he refers to himself as chief of all sinners. Right. And so you see, like there is, even in Paul writing all of this, the same person that is laying all of this down, he sees himself as chief of all sinners, which is an indication of his need for God, and by extension, our need for God. Now, we've talked about a couple of observations that we are in Christ, right? That is the foundation of our relationship with him. We've seen the triune action of God in history and by extension, your life, that your life is not random. Right? What I want you to think about that is that God thought about you before the beginning of time and decided you were a good idea. So he created you, right? And that you are not random. And then we've come to see the lavishness of God's grace, just the outpouring from God, right? Blessing after blessing after blessing in this passage. Now, what is the point of this? The fourth observation, the purpose of God, right? And and so I would be remiss, obviously, to look at this passage and not touch on the purpose of God for your life. Now, generally, uh, we, at least... In, in, in uh, I guess I would say the secular world, we, we tend to talk about purpose as almost like a specific thing, some goal you're achieving, some list you have, some place you want to be, some end you want to achieve. Right? That is what we look at as purpose. And sometimes we, we look at our dreams, our passions, our interests, let's even say they are all noble and God-inspired, and we say that is our purpose. Right? Um, I'm here to offer a different view on that. That even if those dreams, those passions, those interests, they are noble, they are God-glorifying, they are God-inspired. Purpose is not about what you do. Purpose is not about what you've accomplished, what you're running after, your goals. Purpose is about who you are becoming. And your purpose, my purpose, we all have one purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So in verse 4 in the passage, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. The word holy doesn't mean there are 10 things you do, there are 10 things you don't do. Not at all. Right? It doesn't mean you are, again, pious and you have everything right. Not at all. What it actually means is that you are set apart, consecrated unto God, right? And the, the idea it carries, that word being holy and blameless before him, the idea it carries is that you are being conformed to his nature, to his image, obviously over time and by his power, right? But that is the point of all of this, of all those blessings, that the point of divine election, even I know we might have issues with that, the point of divine election is that you be conformed to his image. 
that is the purpose God is driving at in all of this. Right. So with that being said, right, another way you could say that is that you're becoming more Christ-like, like we talked about. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is, as we look at these observations, let us be ordering our lives in a certain way. That we are living in a way, or at least we have a way of life that is growing towards glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So like I said, we've talked about how we are in Christ in terms of the observations. This is where we exist and function. Outside of Christ, we cannot really function as Christians. I hope you see the activity of the triune God throughout history, from eternity to all eternities. And the fact that you can rest and the truth that you are included in God's plan and that you are not random. And if God is walking throughout history, then he is walking in your life. Right? And so with that, I hope you can rest your head on the pillow of his sovereignty. Right? Even in challenging situations or even when things are going good. I, I hope the lavishness of God's grace excites you and comforts you. And that you see that all of this is not for your comfort. It's not necessarily for your wealth. Uh, All of this is not for you to get to some career goal or achievement, even though those things are good. But all of this is for your conformity to the nature and the image of God. And there is no higher purpose than this. Like none. Right, so having seen all of those observations, I want to quickly delve into some implications and then we'll wrap up our time together. So the first implication I'm going to draw is this. If we are in Christ, and being in Christ means that we are grafted into him, that we exist in him. And this basically uh, captures the essence of the gospel. If we are in Christ, if he is the true vine and we are the branches and we exist in him, then Christ has to be both Savior and Lord in our lives. Right? Well, what that means is, We cannot choose to have Christ as our savior and then somehow decide to postpone living in submission and obedience to him. Christ has to be both savior and Lord in our lives. I'm not implying that we will become perfectly obedient. No, it's over time we keep growing into his nature, right? But what I'm trying to point out is is that there has to be a trajectory of our continued submission to Christ over time, over time, obviously, right? So I'm not saying over a year, two years, three years, five years. No, no, no. Over time, uh, a continued trajectory of our submission to him. And so the question I have for you is this. When you look at your passions, your interests, your goals, your dreams, you look at the zeal you commit to that, the energy, the planning, the thinking, all of that. How much of that do we have the same kind of intensity when it comes to becoming apprenticeship of Jesus Christ? Right? If Christ is both Savior and Lord, right, how seriously are we taking our relationship with him? Right? Is it central or is it more of an add-on? Like how seriously are we committed to truly having him? A savior and Lord. And the answer to that question obviously shows up in the pattern of your life. In the way you organize your life and the different things you engage in, right? 
how seriously are we taking our relationship with God? Second implication speaks about hope in the sense that if we are in Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of power, right? You see that in Ephesians 1 from verse 17 downwards into Ephesians 2, right? If he's seated at the right hand side of power, far above all principalities and powers, and he has dominion over all things, why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I struggle with unfortunate situations? Why do those things happen? Right? Why do I struggle with sicknesses or diseases or whatever the case may be? Right? And, and the answer to what, what you see is there is this tension between where we are right now and, and, and the things we struggle with, basically our sins, our afflictions, the sufferings, right? and where Christ is and where we are in him. Right? Again, if he is seated at the right-hand side of power of God above all things, why do we struggle? Why is there still death? Why do our bodies decay? Right? And so there's that struggle. And, and the answer to that question is this idea of this doctrine you probably have heard of, this idea of the already and the not yet. It's this idea that we exist in the kingdom of God. We are partaking in the kingdom of God here and now. But the full expression or the full fulfillment of that kingdom will come with the second advent. The second coming of Christ. So we exist in a state of tension. Right? Christ has come. The first advent. We are partaking in the kingdom. Right? But the full kingdom isn't here yet. So even when you look at the miracles of Christ. Take Lazarus. Christ risen Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus still ended up dead. You know. 10 years later. 15 years later. Whatever. But he still ended up being dead. Right? So we are in this transition so to say. Right. But the point I'm trying to draw, the implication I'm trying to draw, is that of hope. That yes, we are in a place where we struggle and things don't look well. Right? It could be the potential loss of a loved one. Right? It could be this, this meaningless view of life. What is life? But at the same time, what this tells us though is we know the end. Like the end is known, it is written. We know our end, eternity, union with the triune God. And so that wherever we may be, whatever we struggle with, there is hope. Right? Now when, when I say there is hope, I don't necessarily mean things will work out the way you want them to work out here and now. But what I'm saying is that in light of eternity, we know where we are going. We know the end should give us hope should strengthen us to take one step after the other real quickly the word hope in the english language carries with it this sense of optimism you know i hope it doesn't rain tomorrow it's a sense of optimism in in the greek that's not what it means in the greek it's a certainty of good that the good is coming it's not a question of if the good is coming it is coming it's more of a question of when timing so to give a, a brief illustration, so if you, if you picture this scenario where, let, let's say you're in, on, on the battlefield, you know, with all this action movies, you're fighting a war, whatever, right? And you're surrounded on all sides, right? And you know that you're done, right? Let's say it's like 50 of you, there's like 2,000 of them. You're done. You're not getting out of it, you know? And you're getting ready to charge one last time. And then you hear a horn blow. And then you hear stamping footsteps, and you know that horn belongs to your allies. So you know they're on their way. Right? What happens is, even though it's 50 of you, it's 2,000 of them, all you're trying to do is, oh man, we got this. <laughs> they're coming, you guys are done. <laughs> and you basically begin to have this idea of the enemy retreating because they're hearing 
that horn and they're hearing all the massive footsteps coming. That's the idea of hope. It is coming. It's not, will it come or not? It is coming. So your end is known. And that end is eternity with God. The, the next um, implication here is, is this idea of our identity. Right? If you look at the deliberate willing and acting, the planning of God, all of that is proof of God's love for you. Right? Even as he chose you in him before the foundations of the world. The fine-grained plan of God that spans eternity to eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, is for you. You. It's, it's for you, Chris. It's for you, Daniel. Right? It's for you. It's for every single one of you here. Right? And, and, and what you should understand, what you should see here, is that for God to accomplish that purpose, he had to basically sacrifice himself, his son. Which is show you the extent of his love for you. That you are important to God. You are loved by God. You are important to God. Like I want you to really think about that. And settle that in your mind. If that is one thing you take from here. That you, specifically you, with all your history, all your past, sorry. The circumstances, everything you've been through, you are loved by God. So I want you to let this deliberate willing, the planning of God, reassure you. If God's hope for you is that you be adopted through Christ Jesus, this is his plan. This is what he predestined you for. Then your identity can only be one thing. That you are a beloved child of God. Your identity is not in what you do. It's not in what people say about you. It's not in what you have or what you've accomplished. Your identity is that you are a beloved child of God. It's not in your performance. You don't have to be the master of your faith, the captain of your ship. You don't have to be that. Let God be that for you. Your identity is that you are a beloved child of God. Your circumstances do not change your identity. Life is sometimes not a, a bed of roses, right? It can be harsh. It can be tough things in there. But in light of all of that, you are a beloved child of God. The people that know me know that I don't like flying, especially in turbulence. <laughs> I generally see how small my faith is when there is turbulence in an airplane. I'm like, oh man, here we go. Like, God, do we have to do this? Why can't we just have a smooth flight? <laughs> and I get where I'm going. <laughs> I'm talking about serious turbulence, right? Where like the host and hostesses have to sit down. That, that kind of turbulence. Um, and during that time, say if it happens for a long while, let's say like an hour. You know, at first you're like, oh, like what's going on? <laughs> but the more it happens... The more I have to come to grips that I don't have control over my life. I try to think that I do, but I don't. Right? Because I know if I was the one flying the plane, I'll be fine. <laughs> like, I, I know that, that I'll be fine. Like, eh, it's just turbulence. <laughs> but because I'm not flying, I'm like, whew, whew. I remember the last flight I was on. <laughs> there was an elderly gentleman behind me, beside me. <laughs> and the plane said, like, and I held his hand. And I'm sure he was looking at me like... I'm like, I'm like, we're guys here, don't, don't say anything. 
but now nah, he was he was a good he was good about it but but the point i'm trying to drive is in that state right when there is fear when there is anxiety of any sort and that's a funny state but you know life is more real than that right more serious than that what holds me what, what i rely on is the fact that it's basically the name of god the name of christ emmanuel god is with me it doesn't mean the plane can't crash the plane can still crash but i know he's with me right and that settles my heart that is a reminder of my identity and who i am it is a reminder of where i am going right in that one word emmanuel it communicates so much that it settles my being. And not just when I'm in airplanes, but even when I'm faced with difficult decisions. Right? Just a reminder, Emmanuel, God is with me in this. And, and so I, I want to say it again. God loves you. You are a beloved child of God. Right? Your, your sustenance is in the hands of God. God is the one that is in charge of your life. And, and so if you ever have a question about your identity and who you are and what you mean to God, please come back to Ephesians chapter 1 from verses 3 to 14. Like feast your eyes on it. Let your soul linger there. See that this is who you are. This is what you mean to God. Right? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 captures your identity captures god's will towards you in in ephesians in the same text in verses five and nine there is a word there for purpose in in the original text that phrase or the, the collection of words used that is translated as purpose actually carries with it this sense of good pleasure so it's not just that god has this purpose and this is my purpose and everybody be assigned to it it's almost like there is this deliberate delightfulness in god this pleasure this planning and pleasurable disposition in having that purpose for you and that purpose is conformity to his image to his nature there is no higher purpose than that so again if you're like me, a lot of times I struggle with identity. I go back to this passage. This is my identity, right? Um, the, the next implication here is that of humility. When you look at the lavishness of God and just everything God has poured out in this passage, the only response, the only posture of your heart is that of humility. Like by ourselves, we are not worth anything. Right, so there is nothing to pat yourself on the back on. There is nothing to say, oh, I've been following God since I was a young kid. No, no. Right? The only posture, the only response we can have when we contemplate this unblushing promises of God, when you think of election before the foundations of the world, before you were formed, election, God choosing you, right? Him adopting you into his family if you will have him. Right? That, that's the phrase in, in Christ, right? The idea of being in Christ is that you have accepted him, you will have him. Right? The only thing, the only posture of your heart, the only response before God and before man is that of humility. Right? That there is no room for pride at all. And then the last implication I want to touch on is this idea of the greatest opportunity we have been given. So when you look at the gift of your years, the gift of your lives, 
what I want to present here is that we have all been given an opportunity that transcends life. An opportunity that stretches forth into eternity. And what am I saying? We have been invited. This is the opportunity. We have been invited into a life, a union with the triune God. A deep interpersonal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'd say that another way. We have been invited into the opportunity of being apprentices of Christ. So when Jesus appeared on the scene in Matthew 4, in the start of his ministry, and he said, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The idea there is an invitation into this life of union with God. Jesus, towards his death in John 17, when he would pray for his disciples, and not just his disciples, but all those that would believe in him through them, including us. The dominant theme of that prayer in John 17 is union with the triune God. Right? That we may be in him as he is in the Father. That the same love that the Father has for him may be in us. Union with the triune God. This is the opportunity that we've been given. In practical terms, right, I can say with a high degree of certainty, and this is a little bit grim, but that there is a lot of death in our future. Right? One way or the other, we will bury people and they will eventually bury us. Right? Of course, this is um, with the exception of the advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But apart from that, we are all going to die. It's inevitable. And so when you contemplate death, and you think of the gift of your life, the only thing that makes sense, the only anchor to your life, the only reason, the only worth of your life that makes sense, that transcends the pain and everything we face, is that we use that life to glorify him. That is the only thing that makes sense. You see, on the side of life, on the side of eternity, there are no permanent foundations. Everything here is sifting sand. It will pass. Your strength, your beauty, your vigor, your intelligence, everything will pass. And so in contemplating death, the only thing that makes sense is that we live lives as apprentices of Christ for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. This is the opportunity we have been given. Naturally, at this point, if you've heard me speak, I would naturally go into spiritual disciplines. These are the things you should be doing. Pray more, read your Bible, this and that, fast. Those things are great. Evangelism, we need to do them. I don't get me wrong. But at this point, I want to go beneath all of that to the heart that should be powering all those spiritual disciplines, which are important, right? The praying, the fasting, the study, solitude, silence. There is no way to know God apart from his word, right? There isn't. It's not by listening to anybody that is up here speaking, right? You have to get into his word. But beneath all of that is a heart for God, a desire for God. And so this is my hope and my challenge, my prayer for all of us, is that we become people, the type of people that we see God, we see and we know him as our greatest and ultimate treasure by way of enjoying him as our greatest and ultimate pleasure. Right, that we see him as our greatest and ultimate treasure 
We know him as that by way of enjoying him as our greatest and ultimate pleasure. So what I'm driving at here is can be seen also in Matthew 13, 44 to like 46. I, I think someone touched on this, maybe Nick or John, I'm not sure, about how there was a... Let me quickly read it. It says, the kingdom of the heavens. So Jesus is sort of describing the kingdom of the heavens, basically this idea of being in Christ. It says, the kingdom of the heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Please listen to this. Then it says, then in his joy, in his joy, he goes away and he sells everything he has to purchase that field. Right. And then Jesus will use another uh, 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 depiction. He says, again, again, the kingdom of the heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And who, on finding one pearl of great value, the idea is finding this pearl of the greatest value. He goes away and he sells everything he has to buy that pearl. So, so I hope you are seeing the primacy of intimacy with God in that depiction. Right, you could essentially replace the kingdom of God when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. You could essentially say, being in Christ is like this. Right? And, and then in Luke chapter 10, right, a lot of times we talk about spiritual gifts. And you know, sometimes when you see people walk in spiritual gifts, you tend to think, oh man, that's great. I wish I could do that. They seem like they're closer to God. <laughs> right? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72, two by two. Uh, you could say after a great walk of ministry and revival and evangelism and all of that, should they come back to him in verse 17? The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Right? Verse 18, Jesus says, And I said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was basically confirming what they were saying. And then in verse 19, he says, Behold, I have given you authority, saying this to the disciples, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I mean, you should be on a high if you hear that from God. You're like, what? I can say anything? I can tread over anything? Like, I want my mansion right here. <laughs> right? But the next verse is important verse 20 jesus says nevertheless in spite of all of this great revival and all this thing happening nevertheless do not rejoice in this meaning this cannot be your focus do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven the idea of your names being written in heaven is that you have a relationship with god the primacy of intimacy with God. This is the opportunity we've been offered. Relationship with God. Union with the triune God. Like think about what that means to be united with him. That is what we have been offered. So in closing, I want to leave you with a quote. Uh, this is where I got the title of the, of the sermon. The Unblushing Promises of God. This is from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is a quote that... It's both encouraging, but it's also a challenge. For me personally, this quote at once shows a lot of times the foolishness of the things I run after. When I compare it in light of eternity. And it, it's humbling. It's convicting, but it's also encouraging. Right? It, 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 it's a rebuke of the things I currently engage in. And an encouragement of what could be an encouragement to where God is calling me to. So let me end with this quote. 
This is from C.S. Lewis from the book The Weight of Glory. Um, he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, finds my desires not too strong. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. See, we, have, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, ambition. Add to that career goals, wealth, success, financial security, having a great family, whatever you want. Add to that. He says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy, the union with God, infinite joy is being offered to us. And then he, he paints a picture. He says we are essentially like an ignorant child right, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because that child cannot understand, cannot imagine, cannot fathom what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the seas. See, we are far too easily pleased. Right? For me, the, the clear depiction, like I said, I use the strong word, but that is true. When I read this quote, it often shows me the foolishness of what I run after. It is both a rebuke and an encouragement of what could be. Let's pray. So, Father, we are at your feet. We are thankful for your mercies and the lavishness that pours out from you, this extravagance that comes from you. Thank you. We, we, we are not worthy, but you make us worthy because of your love and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Our prayer today, God, is that you will help unwind our identity from every other thing and center us in you. Help us understand that we are to exist in Christ and you are our identity. We are beloved children of the Most High God. Help us own this personalize this and grow in this and I am praying God that you will give us a heart that desires you far above everything else and when we have that heart the right actions will spring from that please help us help us to have the right desires to see you as our ultimate and greatest treasure by way of enjoying you as our ultimate and greatest pleasure May your name always be glorified in our lives. Teach us to order our lives a certain way. Help us to take practical steps in engaging you, in turning the monologue in our hearts to a dialogue with you. Help us to be conversant of your presence, that we can always turn to you in every situation at all times and deepen our faith in you, deepen our trust of you. Deepen our intimacy with you. Deepen our joy in you, God. So that truly we live lives that glorifies you and enjoys you forever. That we, we, we continue on this path of becoming more Christ-like. That we pay attention to your workings in our lives.
and that overall God that we are always astounded by your mercy and the extent of your love and your lavishness towards us all for the purpose of being holy and blameless before you in Jesus name Amen